Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our June 2013 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Long-acting, or depot antipsychotics, are often recommended for schizophrenia patients with low compliance. Some studies show relatively favorable outcomes with long-acting antipsychotic treatment. However, others do not. Understanding what contributes to these differences in the literature could be beneficial in helping clinicians assess the relative advantages of different antipsychotic formulations in this difficult-to-treat patient population. One possibility is that differences across study designs, for example, randomized control trials and observational studies, influence the comparative effectiveness of oral and depot formulations. A meta-analysis conducted by Kersen and colleagues and funded by Otsuka recently explored this hypothesis. Studies comparing depot and oral antipsychotic treatments in schizophrenia were grouped into randomized controlled trials, prospective observational studies, and retrospective observational studies. The pooled comparative effectiveness of oral versus depot formulations was then estimated for each type of study. In non-randomized observational studies, depot formulations displayed significant advantages, whereas in randomized control trials, no difference was observed. The authors discuss possible reasons for these differences in their article, which include a tension between statistical accuracy and applicability of findings to general clinical practice. Kersen and colleagues also provide estimated conversion factors to facilitate comparison of study findings across different designs. You may access the full text of this article free via the June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Although mood dysregulation is often associated with autism spectrum disorders and autistic traits are common in youth with bipolar disorder, uncertainties remain about the co-occurrence of these disorders. A study supported by the National Institutes of Health examined the clinical and familial correlates of bipolar disorder when it occurs in youth with and without autism spectrum disorders. Clinical correlates and familial risk were assessed using data from a large family study of youth with bipolar 1 disorder. Youth with bipolar 1 disorder were compared with those who had ADHD, but not bipolar disorder, and also with matched controls who had neither bipolar disorder nor ADHD. All subjects were assessed with structured diagnostic interviews and a wide range of measures pertaining to different dimensions of functioning. 30% of the probands with bipolar 1 disorder also met criteria for autism spectrum disorders. The mean age at onset of bipolar 1 disorder was two years younger 
in those who had autism spectrum disorders compared to those who did not. The authors concluded that a clinically significant minority of youth with bipolar 1 disorder also suffers from autism spectrum disorders, and that this represents a very severe psychopathologic state. Phenotypic and family correlates of bipolar 1 disorder were typical of the disorder and were similar in youth with and without comorbid autism spectrum disorders. Doctors may finally have an effective and safe antidepressant to give their elderly patients. In a recent study published in the journal, agamelatine demonstrated positive results in a sample of depressed patients 65 years of age and older. The study authors targeted the drug for research in this age group because previous work had shown it to have a mechanism of action that is distinctive from other currently approved antidepressants. Also, the compound has been associated with a good tolerability profile, indeed a feature of interest, given that elderly patients are often more prone to experiencing side effects and drug interactions. With a rationale established for studying the drug, the authors conducted a placebo-controlled trial sponsored by Servier to evaluate the efficacy, tolerability, and safety of agamelatine treatment for eight weeks in 222 patients. All patients were at least 65 years old and had a recurrent episode of a major depressive disorder. The authors found that in comparison to placebo, agamelatine significantly improved depressive symptoms in elderly patients. 60% of the patients responded to agamelatine treatment. Clinically relevant effects of agamelatine were confirmed on all endpoints in a subset of severely depressed patients. Agamelatine was also well tolerated by all patients. The authors conclude that clinicians should consider agamelatine an attractive option for treating depression in the elderly population. Few treatments are available, so the introduction of an efficient compound that has a distinct mechanism of action may represent an important contribution to the field. Patient preference for type of psychiatric care received is a core element of evidence-based mental health care. Research suggests that when patients receive their preferred treatment, they are more likely to complete treatment and to show better outcomes. For many common psychiatric disorders, such as depression and anxiety, effective pharmacologic and effective psychological treatments are available, which highlights the importance of patient preference to guide treatment selection for these disorders. McHugh and colleagues conducted a meta-analytic review of the literature on patient preference for psychological versus pharmacologic treatment for depression and anxiety to provide an estimate of the relative preference for these treatments across published studies. Results aggregated across 34 studies in diverse settings suggested that a significantly higher proportion of patients prefer psychological treatment to pharmacologic treatment at a rate of 3 to 1. This significant preference for psychological treatment was seen across a range of subgroups, including both treatment-seeking and non-treatment-seeking samples, 
both genders and individuals of various ages. Although the preference was stronger for women than men and for younger as opposed to older adults. These findings highlight the importance of improving access to evidence-based psychological treatments such as cognitive behavioral therapy, which continue to be used far less frequently than medication for depression and anxiety despite similar efficacy. The present finding that about three-quarters of individuals prefer psychological treatments suggests that making evidence-based psychological treatments more readily available may enhance treatment outcomes by connecting patients to their preferred treatment modality. This study received support from the National Institutes of Health. Many psychiatrists find clozapine difficult to use. Clinicians' hesitation to prescribe clozapine is fueled by concerns about medical complications associated with its use. These concerns also often lead to early termination of clozapine, which can have tremendous negative consequences, such as an increased risk of psychotic relapse or suicide. Most side effects of clozapine, however, do not warrant discontinuation and adequate management strategies to exist. The authors conducted a systematic review of clinically relevant adverse effects associated with clozapine. They categorized adverse effects into those that should and should not lead to clozapine discontinuation, also providing an overview of adequate management strategies for these adverse effects. The results suggest that prompt discontinuation without rechallenge is indicated only for agranulocytosis, myocarditis, and cardiomyopathy. Discontinuation, but with potential rechallenge, is indicated for ileus and subileus QTC prolongation greater than 500 milliseconds, neuroleptic malignant syndrome and diabetic ketoacidosis or hyperosmolar coma. Otherwise, most adverse effects can be managed and generally do not warrant clozapine discontinuation, including neutropenia, leukocytosis, seizures, orthostatic hypotension, severe constipation, and moderately prolonged myocardial repolarization. The authors note that lithium can help to boost neutrophil count and that anti-seizure medications can prevent further seizures. Finally, their review indicates that the following conditions are manageable and should almost never lead to clozapine discontinuation. Eosinophilia, leukocytosis, drug-induced fever and tachycardia, provided that myocarditis and neuroleptic malignant syndrome are ruled out. This review, which is our CME offering for June, suggests that most medical complications of clozapine are manageable and in most cases do not require discontinuation. The authors note that psychiatrists should be aware of appropriate management strategies and risks of clozapine termination. Clinical trials are a vital part of developing better treatments for schizophrenia. However, these trials must be conducted in a way that does not exploit the very people they are meant to help. 
Cognitive impairment is a characteristic of schizophrenia that remains stable despite adequate treatment with antipsychotics. This impairment could affect the ability of people in the study to remember the information required for ongoing, knowledgeable participation in clinical trials. It could also make participants with schizophrenia more vulnerable to therapeutic misconception, that is, when a research participant confuses research with clinical care. To learn more about retention of study-related knowledge, the authors of this study, which was funded by the NIMH, followed a group of 59 people with schizophrenia for eight weeks of their participation in one of seven placebo-controlled clinical trials. All of these participants were taking antipsychotics and had stable psychosis. Compared to evaluations at baseline, study knowledge did not meaningfully decrease over the course of the eight weeks. The authors also found that therapeutic misconception was not prominent in this group at baseline or during follow-up. This study is the first to evaluate therapeutic misconception in people with schizophrenia during actual clinical trial participation. The authors conclude that in the absence of a specific reason to suspect a loss of decisional capacity, they see no clear need for researchers to routinely reevaluate participants during placebo-controlled adjunctive clinical trials. This month's ASCP Corner article by Miller and colleagues looks at the relationship between bipolar disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children and adolescents. Studies have shown increased co-aggregation rates of bipolar disorder and ADHD in individuals and families and an increased risk for both disorders in first-degree relatives of bipolar disorder and ADHD patients. The findings support a shared predisposition to these two disorders that extends beyond mere diagnostic convergence. The authors write that it can be difficult to differentiate bipolar disorder from ADHD in youth because of symptom overlap and because pediatric mood disturbance is more often continuous rather than episodic. To improve diagnostic accuracy, they advise clinicians to watch for features that are unique to bipolar disorder, such as euphoria, decreased need for sleep, and psychosis. The authors conclude that outcomes in youth who have both of these disorders may be enhanced by first using a mood-stabilizing agent to yield euthymic mood and then adding a stimulant or atomoxetine to address ADHD. Neuropsychiatric symptoms such as anxiety, depression, and insomnia affect 36% of U.S. adults. A group from Harvard University recently investigated how frequently mind-body medicine is being used for these symptoms. Mind-body medicine is a category of treatment within complementary and alternative medicine that emphasizes the connection between the mind and the body. These interventions may be used for a number of conditions, including post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, and chronic pain syndromes. 
The study used data from the 2007 National Health Interviews Survey, which included over 23,000 U.S. adults. The authors found that 25% of those with neuropsychiatric symptoms used mind-body therapies, versus only 15% of those without such symptoms. Furthermore, Nearly half of the people using these therapies did so either because a conventional provider recommended it or because the person found conventional treatments to be ineffective or too expensive. Having more symptoms increased the likelihood of using these therapies. Notably, most people did not discuss the use of these therapies with their providers. Obsessive-compulsive disorder is a common and often disabling condition. Although cognitive behavioral therapy and serotonin reuptake inhibitors show efficacy, few patients with OCD experience complete symptom resolution with either one, often requiring augmentation. A study funded by Janssen examined the safety, tolerability, and preliminary efficacy of paliperidone a metabolite of risperidone that uses osmotic release oral system drug release technology. The study sample consisted of 34 OCD patients who had not adequately responded to at least two past trials of SRI treatment. For eight weeks, they received either paliperidone at a dose of up to 9 milligrams per day or placebo in addition to their SRI. Although gains made in the paliperidone augmentation condition were not significantly different from those in the placebo arm, there was a numerical trend toward between-group differences, with a reduction of 7.98 points on the Yale-Brown obsessive-compulsive scale for the paliperidone group versus 4.02 points for the placebo group. Paliperidone was generally well-tolerated and was not associated with significant weight gain. The management of many chronic diseases suffers from problems in continued medication adherence, which in turn contributes to avoidable emergency room visits and hospital stays, as well as poor overall outcomes. Tools that can assist and empower patients and caregivers to play a more informed role in healthcare offer an opportunity to improve adherence. Medication review, reconciliation, and optimization are core functions of medication management. Accurate data about medication use and activities of daily living are key factors in that process. Medication management is, in turn, dependent upon the clinical identification of patients in need and screening their medication-taking behavior for the likelihood of adherence to prescription medication. Identifying, evaluating, motivating, and actively monitoring patients in ways that require the physician's overall supervision already imposes an excessive burden on most physicians. Digital medicine offers a means of directly confirming and compiling when, what, and how much medication has been ingested. 
Thus, it addresses an unmet need for a reliable tool and support for healthcare practitioners, patients, and their caregivers in managing and adhering to their medications and medication regimens. This feasibility study represents the first experience with a wireless digital health feedback system from Proteus Digital Health in Redwood City, California, that was utilized for physiologic assessments and direct confirmation of ingestion sensor use by ambulatory patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Such information may facilitate earlier and more targeted interventions for patients at risk of disease progression or relapse. A group of researchers from Canada have found that an often overlooked variable may provide insight into improving end-of-life care for people with schizophrenia. While considerable attention has been given to mortality in schizophrenia, little work has been done to determine where these patients die. Place of death, the researchers submit, can be a marker and mediator of quality end-of-life care. To address this gap in information, the authors examined a matched cohort from Manitoba, Canada of decedents with and without schizophrenia. For a more complete picture of schizophrenia patients at end of life, the researchers also explored how and at what age these patients died. The groups were matched by sex, age, date of death, and area of residence. The study was funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Public Health Agency of Canada. The study results showed that decedents with schizophrenia were twice as likely to die in a nursing home than the matched cohort, and less likely to die in a hospital. And although the risk of suicide was greater for those with schizophrenia than for those without schizophrenia, dying young is still rare in this group. The median age at death was 77 years for people with schizophrenia. A higher percentage of people with schizophrenia died of respiratory illness, and about the same number of people from each group died of circulatory illnesses. For cancer deaths, decedents with and without schizophrenia were equally likely to die of gastrointestinal, breast, or prostate cancer, but decedents with schizophrenia were more likely to die of lung cancer at ages 10 to 59 years. The authors conclude that clinicians should consider whether a nursing home is able to give appropriate care for those with serious mental illness, and whether advice like smoking cessation is needed for patients to reduce respiratory disease and lung cancer. In this month's Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade explains the paradox behind why the substituted benzamide, such as sulpiride, raise serum prolactin levels at both low and high doses. He also discusses clinical problems associated with hyperprolactinemia and ways to manage hyperprolactinemia that occurs during treatment with low-dose substituted benzamides. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to get Dr. Andrade's take on the topic and participate in the discussion. In closing, 
Be sure to visit us online for book reviews, interactive activities from our CME Institute, and much, much more from the June issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.